0: Going beyond the headlines, getting to the heart of the story. Calgary Today
1: with Joe McFarland on 770 CHQR. Good Wednesday afternoon. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. I think it's cool, especially in the new year, to look into the future. And we have done that in all sorts of ways, whether it be electronic vehicles, autonomous autonomous vehicles, exactly what the robots that may be running our lives, taking our jobs. But what does the future look like, especially when it comes to technology and our government? We, We often talk about technology in the private sector, and they seem to be moving ahead by leaps and bounds. But what is it going to look like, the new future, and the way our governments are run? Sunil Jahal, Policy Director at the Moat Centre at the University of Toronto, joins us today. Hello, Sunil. Hi, how are you? Uh, I'm good, but I don't know. Sometimes I'm afraid when I look into the future and see exactly where artificial intelligence is going. But you're saying we've got to start focusing on how we're going to apply it in the public sector. Is that right?
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, we've done a lot of research here at the Moat Centre at the University of Toronto on the impacts of technology on government, uh, and one of the things that we're, we're just starting to think about a little bit more now is how can government actually use some of these new technologies to deliver services uh, more effectively and more efficiently? So even if you think about something like uh, registering a business or filing your taxes, how can governments just uh, deliver those services through digital means more effectively. How can they use new technologies like artificial intelligence to maybe screen applications for funding programs, for example? So you don't need clerks or policy analysts doing that work. You can instead have uh, you still have instead have computers uh, doing that. The challenge is, unfortunately, that our uh, experience to date in Canada. Uh, is that governments haven't really been that great at adapting technology uh, to do fairly basic uh, things. So the question becomes as we start grappling with newer and more complex forms of technology, can governments keep up uh, not only to regulate these technologies but actually use them uh, themselves?
1: When you start talking about technology and government, right at the top of the list to me is the Phoenix pay system. And and I know that wasn't a simple application, but we've seen where that has gone and how costly that has been.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, that was a system, I think it was supposed to save the government $70 million a year by streamlining the pay system for federal civil servants. Uh, but there have been just setback after setback with the system. And now, uh, estimates are it might cost a billion dollars for the government to fix that uh, pay system. And every week or two, you'll see another story about uh, civil servants who aren't getting their paycheck or aren't getting uh, enough of their paycheck uh, on time. And there's a fairly significant backlog uh, of cases that the government is grappling with to go back and examine, well, who didn't get paid uh, for what amount and how are we going to make sure they get paid uh, that amount? See, so that that's kind of... Of the example of what you'd think would be should be a fairly simple thing to implement. Let let's figure out how to pay our own uh employees has really blown up into a a real problem for uh the government. And it's I mean, quite honestly it's not the government necessarily on its own who's uh, implementing the system, I mean, they've hired the private se- hired private sector yeah. firms to do this for them. But there's just so many rules and exemptions and things with government uh, pay-, pay processes that uh, the system just hasn't uh, worked to date. So that's kind of the the classic example that we hear of right now of government just really struggling to uh, implement a technology solution to what should be a fairly simple. Uh, and straightforward uh, issue.
1: Sunil, so do you think though at the base of this is just the size of government, and we're, we're focusing here on the federal government, but even if we started to look at a municipal level or a provincial level, maybe that's how we have to even start to play with it. And I know people will say there already are examples of technology at those levels, but do you think that's the problem when we, we look at something like the Phoenix pay system? It's just so massive.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's complexity. You've got dozens and dozens of different departments all with their own little exemptions and little rules for how they pay people and lots of different union rules for different types of classifications. Uh, but as you say, this, the same the same challenges exist uh, at the provincial level as well. I mean, Ontario and I think BC have also had problems with uh, electronic medical records and systems to designed to migrate records for patients. Uh, online and again you're dealing with very sensitive information uh, you're dealing with lots of uh, lots of different uh, types of Clients, you're dealing with many rules that you need to abide by, um, and any mistake that you make will be highly publicized and will be on the front page of the newspaper. So it's an environment that doesn't really uh, promote risk-taking. If anything, it promotes people uh, within government to take a very cautious uh, approach to implementing new technology and in many cases just put off that uh, new technology completely and say let's just deal with – and work with what we've got and maybe the next guy can come in and uh implement the new tech stuff let's just keep keep working with our industrial age solutions um right now but the issue is Will that really be a mindset that's going to work effectively in today's world and in tomorrow's world where all of the businesses that we interact with, whether it's banks or retailers, are increasingly going online, increasingly providing us with very effective, useful digital um, services? And can governments stay behind in that type of environment? And uh, if you look at other countries and some very small countries, they've they've been very effective at – at the government level, at implementing uh, digital services, Estonia and Eastern Europe is probably the, the leader in digital services, and uh, a lot of people in Canada, if you talk to them in the government, they'll say, well, we can't possibly be Estonia. They're a much smaller uh, country than we are, and it's a lot easier to implement systems when you don't have a lot of old legacy systems. Yeah. and You kind of have to say, well, if Canada can't be Estonia, that's really setting the bar very low for uh, where we want to go. And I think most Canadians would expect, well, we should be able to do what a country like Estonia does, and we should actually be able to do better than that.
1: Sunil, anyone who has worked with any level of government knows that bureaucracy moves at a snail's pace. And I think that's ultimately the problem as well. You, You touched on it about, well, let's make let someone else make that decision. You know, that goes on and on. And I feel like we're never going to see any advancements then in that way well that's
0: yeah I mean it's a time issue, and a lot of the systems governments have or have been in place for many years. I mean I was at a, a luncheon a few weeks ago before the holidays with uh, somebody from a tech a tech company, and his job was working with school boards here in Ontario and trying to uh, work with them to sell them technology essentially and I mean he he said to me quite honestly uh, I I try and sometimes say to them you're buying things that I wouldn't sell to my private sector clients you're buying very expensive products but I'd rather sell you a license and you can just use uh, software in the cloud and you can use uh, services that will update for you on a regular basis but the way the procurement rules work for the school boards uh, it's not really possible for them to buy that that new more kind of software as a service uh, portfolio, so instead they buy actual hardware, they buy systems, and then they have to contract with this company to come back in and fix these systems when they get broken. the result of that is the school boards are spending a lot more money uh, than they have to, and they're spending it on outdated systems. Uh, and you've got to question why that's the case, and why can't we move towards rules that recognize, hey, there are different ways of procuring uh, services from the private sector. We can uh, buy licenses. We can break projects down into smaller... Uh, parts, But, again, that really is going to require a mindset shift from government that, that we're not uh, just kind of a rules-based, risk-averse, slow-moving uh, type of organization. Instead, we're going to try some new things, we're going to experiment, uh, and we're going to try and move into the future successfully.
1: I can't believe I'm saying this, but I'm going to cut the government some slack because I wonder if also there is the concern that, well, I mean, today we're hearing about RBC online banking sporadic. Customers are saying, what's happened to my online banking? Yesterday it was TD. There is a bit of a a lack of trust sometimes when it comes to technology. Do you think that could also be at the root of this, that they they do have to have the more expensive systems to be able to ensure that their customers are protected?
0: Well, I think that's definitely the the approach that governments would argue that they're taking, that they need to be particularly cautious. I mean, it's one thing if your Amazon account goes down for a few hours and you can't buy uh, you can 't buy something, but if you uh, go to the doctor and you can 't access your medical records yeah. because the server is down that 's a big problem and it could lead to some kind could lead to a life threatening situation or or something like that so you 're talking about serious issues you 're talking about uh, life and death sometimes with the types of issues governments are in charge of. Um, regulating and, and the services they're in charge of delivering. Uh, so I think, we ex- yeah, we absolutely, we should be paying more for redundancies and backups and fail-safes to make sure that systems aren't down uh, for a long time. But that that still doesn't mean that we can't um, get slightly better at doing some of the things we do in terms of delivering digital services. Um, I mean, I mentioned Estonia earlier, but I mean, they actually have a law on the books in Estonia. It's illegal for the government to ask you for the same piece of information twice because their systems are so good. They mm. assume that once you've entered a piece of uh, information into their uh, electronic databases, they've got it and it's up to them to find it. They don't, they're not going to expect you to fill out the same form five times or three times. Once they've got the information, they're going to use it and populate it for you. So when you go to file your taxes in Estonia, it takes you three or four minutes because the form is essentially all filled out from your employer and from your bank. You just check to make sure everything is good and you submit it and you get your refund usually within a day.
1: So Neil, hold on here because, yeah, the Estonia comparison is always a little, oh, really? That's, they're better than us. But after After the break, I do want to touch on the fact that, yeah, what we're hearing with the Phoenix pay system where we've had uh, civil servants not paid, lack of pay, but at least they have a job. And I think the future is going to be a lot different. Sunil Jahal is my guest this half hour, policy director at the Mowat Center at the University of Toronto. Back with Sunil after this. We do talk a lot about uh, the future, and especially when it comes to artificial intelligence, technologies that are prevalent in the private sector, but we're not seeing similar uses in the public sector. My guest is Sunil Johal, Policy Director at the Mowat Centre at the University of Toronto. Uh, A couple of texts, Sunil Gordy says, I'll bet that if the Phoenix pay system affected the MP's paychecks, that it would have been fixed a long time ago. Uh, Yeah, there's a cynic in all of us. And then the other one, though, says, your guest is 100% accurate. Currently, Alberta government is using software developed back in the early 2000s. Workers are forced to use multiple outdated softwares for documentation, etc. It is sad. So, Sunil, I mean, we, even in the private sector, it's hard to be able to keep up with all the changes, but they seem a little more nimble. Is that another problem then when it comes to something like the federal government, that technology is always changing? You go down one road, and then before you know it, you're spending lots of money to go down another. Well, for sure. I mean,
0: when you think about big technology investments that the government might want to make, the huge risk is they're investing in a technology that three or five years from now will be uh, leapfrogged by something else. And that makes it really tricky again to make those decisions about, well, do we invest in blockchain technology or do we invest in this type of artificial intelligence software, or this other type? Uh, and again, that's why I would argue governments need to be better at experimenting and trying smaller scale uh, projects rather than necessarily going for the big bang home run solution Mm. that they think might fix everything. Because the risk of that is obviously that uh, if you get it wrong, you've spent billions of dollars potentially on something that uh, is not of any use anymore
1: now let 's talk about the elephant in the room, because this means we 're going to see if you 're talking about apps for registration, um, different ways to streamline medical records, there are people currently doing those jobs. What does that mean in the the long run then? Because I could see some of these government workers as I mentioned the the Phoenix pay system has screwed up, but they 've got a job right now that could change fundamentally in the future?
0: Well, I mean, one of the arguments or justifications for the Phoenix pay system in the first place was that it would require less workers to actually administer payroll. They could uh, cut back on the number of workers, and that would really lead to that $70 million a year Mm. in uh, savings, obviously, in the short term now it 's actually led to more people being hired because they need a lot of help desk people to call to, to handle the calls from civil servants who aren 't getting paid but that, I think that is the, the big elephant in the room here is that uh, the private sector has been and is probably going to continue to experience some really significant uh, changes in terms of the types of work that people are doing. You're going to likely see more people engaged in part-time, temporary work, the so-called gig uh, economy, where they don't necessarily have benefits attached to their uh, employment. Uh, I mean, if you look at the longer-term statistics, part-time work in Canada is up almost 60% over the last 40 years, and one in five Canadians now work in uh, a part-time position. The challenge for government is that they have been relatively immune to those changes in the labor market. I mean, public sector unionization rates are over 70 percent. That compares to 15 percent in the private sector. Mm Uh, so you've got people who have relatively secure, relatively well-paying jobs at the public sector, and that's a good thing, obviously. We want that for everyone. Uh, but but in reality, we're starting to see more and more people in the private sector uh, see their jobs downgraded from full-time positions with benefits into part-time positions or temporary positions which may not have benefits. And I think the natural outcome of that is probably going to be uh, in five years or ten years uh, more and more pressure from private private sector workers. Arguing for and, and calling for reforms to the public sector, and saying, "Hey, why are those folks able to kind of have the, these really secure positions and able to use technology that's 30 years out of date uh, and, and keeps them in a job where uh, I'm getting automated out of my job? And artificial intelligence has taken over 30 percent of uh, the workforce in my uh, in my plant. Mm. Uh, so I think I think that's really the the issue here that." Uh, the public sector and the private sector are heading along different paths when it comes to technology. The private sector is starting to get hit quite hard by the impacts of technology and automation and the private, The public sector, on the other hand, uh, has been relatively immune. Uh, to date, so if, if that continues, what what will will the outcome of that uh, of that situation be?
1: You're supposed to have the answer, Sunil. <laughs> well, <laughs>
0: well, I, th- I mean, I, I do think the outcome will be there's going to be a lot more pressure on government to become more efficient and to adopt these technologies. It's not it's not going to be okay for the the person who works at a bank, for example, and is surrounded by advanced artificial intelligence and blockchain technology. Uh, to walk to a government office where you 've got fifty people shuffling papers and uh, kind of doing fairly routine repetitive tasks, that person is going to question well how come I, I I have to work with all this technology, and half of the people I work with got laid off or are now uh, outsourced and yeah. working in thailand and But when I come to interact with the government that 's not the case, so I think it 's really going to have it 's going to cause governments to have to accelerate their digital uh, agendas accelerate their adoption of these types of technologies, um, and I think the more the more success they have in in that uh, endeavor, the better off they'll be at uh, averting criticism from the private sector who are saying, "Hey, well." If it's impacting us, it should really be impacting you, too.
1: Yeah. But, I mean, unions are strong, and, and I almost wonder, in this case, sometimes I'm saying, well, good, at least they're trying to hold on to some jobs, because we hear the reports of what it's going to be like for job losses in the hundreds of thousands as we move in this direction.
0: Yeah, and that is absolutely the, the big challenge here. It's, it's uh its unions uh, have a very strong role in protecting and advocating for good jobs, and that's a great thing. But when it comes time to change, maybe there's going to be a challenge with collective agreements entrenching existing ways of work and holding on to, well, we did this with we did this particular type of job with 100 people back in 2000 or 2005 when we signed the agreement. Why do we need to downsize that to 40 people now? But I think unions are going to need to, in the public sector environment, start thinking about, well, it's not necessarily about reducing the number of people who are doing things, but it's about moving those people into higher value-add tasks. So Mm -hmm. we don't have people, again, doing those routine tasks in offices, but who are adding value, adding insight, adding analysis, maybe providing a special customer service uh, function. So it's not necessarily less people, but it's people just doing things differently. Um, And I think that is where the challenge is going to uh, arise because absolutely i don't think we should be advocating for less uh, protections for workers i think if anything i mean we should be advocating for more protections uh, for workers and the 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 other issue that comes into play here as well uh, is there a role for government to step in with social policies so that if somebody's laid off from their job from government or from the private sector they've got good access to employment insurance, they've got good access to skills retraining, retraining so that yeah. they can spend six months out of work, but they don't feel like they're falling behind on their bills or their mortgage or rent payments, and then they can get another job that pays them well, uh, and maybe in three years they have to go through that same process. But it's not a crisis where they have no help, they have no options uh, to reskill themselves in this in this fast-moving uh, labor market so it's really about providing supports for people uh, and that's again another role government can play not as employer but as service provider and as uh, insurer of last resort so that when people do lose their jobs or uh, maybe move into a part-time position for a full-time position uh, there are supports in place
1: yeah so neil challenging times ahead for sure thanks so much for this
0: my pleasure thank you
1: Sunil jahal policy director at the moat center at the university of toronto some good texts coming in i want to share those after the news it's 328